0: What's up, folks? Welcome back to the WHOOP podcast, where we're on a mission to unlock human performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of WHOOP. On this week's episode, WHOOP VP of Performance Science, our fearless principal scientist, Kristen Holmes, is joined by one of the world's top master's runners, Ken Rideout. He's one of the world's top master athletes and has been crowned the world's best marathoner over 50 by the New York Times. Previously, he worked on Wall Street and has since become a successful entrepreneur and co-host of The Fight podcast with Teddy Atlas. In addition to his running accolades, Ken is known for sharing his story about overcoming opioid addiction. Kristen and Ken discuss Ken's background growing up in Boston. He actually worked in a prison that his stepfather and brother were incarcerated, and that's an amazing story. How he was working in finance and ultimately dealt with addiction, What led Ken to endurance sports? He needed a new avenue to channel this energy and purpose. How technology has helped him become the top marathon runner over 50. His whoop data from the Gobi March. We talked about his poor sleep and high strain for grueling conditions and passions outside of the running community. If you have a question was answered on the podcast, reminder, email us, podcast at whoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. Without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Ken Rideout.
1: Ken Rideout is one of the world's top master athletes and has been crowned the world's best marathoner over 50 by the New York Times. Previously, Ken worked on Wall Street and has since become a successful entrepreneur and co-host of The Fight podcast with... Legendary Teddy Alice. In addition to his running accolades, Ken is known for sharing his story and overcoming opioid addiction. The Boston native, I'm Boston native too, <laughs> completed all six of the world's major marathons in the last 17 months and won three of them for his over 50 division. The other three saw Ken finish in second place for the division. He's competed in triathlons and most recently won the Gobi March in central Mongolia. He is the master of the sub two-hour and 30-minute marathon at 50 and over, and he is our esteemed guest today. Ken, welcome.
2: Oh, thank you. As you were reading all those accolades, I'm like, wow, <laughs> this guy sounds super impressive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's super impressive what you've done. I, You know, it's, it's just endurance sports is just a whole different animal. And I think, you know, you got to be a little off, I think in some <laughs> ways to kind of really like dig into that sport and, and survive. And I think thriving is like a whole nother level. I mean, your backstory is just, I mean, it's, it's heart wrenching. It's really an incredible story. So I, 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 I say kind of a little off in jest in that, you know, I think some of probably your early Kind of life has really kind of put you in this position to be able to kind of thrive in, I think, what is really one of the hardest, most grueling sports in the world. So, would love to hear a little bit about your backstory, Ken.
2: Yeah, happy to share. And um, thank you for that inter- introduction. I am uh, incredibly flattered and honored. And it's very humbling to hear someone repeat the things that I've done because sometimes i don't know if other people have had this experience but it doesn't really it doesn't even seem real like um wow i did that you know coming from the place where i came from with regards to the throes of my addiction to now be hosted on a podcast like this whoop which Mm -hmm. i've been a fan of for um, many years is just man it makes me feel emotional and hopefully it serves as inspiration for others out there because I've, I've said this before and I, I genuinely believe it. Like I have no special talents. I'm not really, I, I promise you, I'm not really good at anything. I, I'm just other than trying. Um, I was a division three athlete in college, you know, at that level, you know, more or less you just show up and you're on the team. You're interested in football. Can you run from one end of the field to the other without falling down? You're on the team. I, I say that just because, I really wasn't a superstar athlete but but coming out of the, um, the the struggles I had with with addiction, I just made a conscious effort not to be mediocre in anything that I was doing anymore and 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 just started to take some pride in in the way I conducted myself and again, coming from, you know the, this place of self-loathing where I where I lived for so many years, struggling with opioids. It, it I don't find it to be that challenging compared to the challenges that I've dealt with. And the other the only other thing that I would say with regards to you know you mentioned that you know some of the world's most ch- challenging events. <laughs> I would say to the people who think that uh, a marathon might be hard, try to um, have a competitive fight in a cage or in a ring and realize that not only are you tired and have to keep pressing, but someone's actually trying to like punch you in your face or tear your head off. And then you really know what like exhaustion and fear feels like. And as funny as that may sound, that's kind of my motivation when I get into dark places in Ironman or in a marathon. I just, I honestly, I do it all the time. And I've said this before. I remind myself constantly, no one's trying to punch my face. You can't hurt me with like the, the 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 suffering and the pain that I'm feeling right now is self-induced and I don't believe I can hurt myself. I've already tried and, and I've come through. So, you know, I, I, I I'm, I'm being lighthearted about it, but the truth is like when you, when you're suffering and when you're in those dark places, whatever it may be, it could be studying, it could be uh you know, late night or doing your piano lessons or whatever it is that you're passionate about. You know, I, I try to just remind myself how much more difficult life could be. How much more difficult some people have it, mm-hmm. and um, remind myself that this is something I'm doing by choice, and it's something that I, I has filled me with with pride it's given me purpose it's mm-hmm. given me a distraction from myself at times, which is sometimes we we're, we're our own worst enemies and um
1: you know I'd love to understand you know just just your upbringing you know and and kind of and just wondering kind of how you've been able to to kind of get on the other side, maybe you're not even on the, on the other side yet. But you know, what does kind of healing look like for you?
2: Yeah, no, great question. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the inner city, broken family. Just to provide some context as to the type of uh, lifestyle or household I was coming from, I um, when I graduated from high school, yeah, I went to Somerville High School just outside of Boston. A week after I graduated high school, I was a guard in a prison outside of Boston. And my brother and stepfather uh, were inmates in that prison, not necessarily at the same time, but they had done time there. And, you know, at that time and at that place where I grew up, it wasn't uncommon for um, most of the guards to have relatives um, as inmates. Uh, One of my colleagues, who was also a guard at the time, was Mickey Ward, who they made the movie The Fighter about. And Mickey's brother, Dickie Eklund, who was played by Christian Bale in the movie The Fighter, was in there, was in the prison during the time that I worked there. So Mickey and I were working there. His brother was an inmate at the time we were there. So just just to kind of paint a picture of like what this life was like. So I know some of the people that I'm around now and lucky enough to be around. Like we were talking before, before we started the podcast, like my friend Rob Moore, who's partners with my other friend, Andrew Huberman. Like, you know, when I tell them these stories, I know it sounds a little bit crazy to people, but this was... When you're a child and that's all you know, it's just, that's the norm. Like in my mind, when I got that job, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a um, probation officer or a, um, you know, counselor at the prison. Of course, I worked there a week. and was like, oh, I got to get the hell out of here. I better start studying because this, the only thing worse than being an inmate is being a guard here. This was the worst job I've ever had. I I couldn't get through my childhood fast enough. I was like, please just, but I didn't even really comprehend the idea of going to college and living in the dormitories. The first time I went to see a university and see college dorms, I thought I had found Nirvana. I'm like, yeah. Oh my God. I literally, I was like, Oh my God, I can get away from them and live here. I didn't even know that boarding schools. I mean, I had heard of boarding schools, but that was for someone else. That was never for someone like me, which in hindsight, I wish I had known they existed. I would have applied for every scholarship under <laughs> the sun, but these are things that you learn in uh, with time and experience. And, um, I'm kind of abbreviating things but yeah mm. to, to 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 summarize it was anxiety ridden uh super unsettled unstable a violent place with a lot of um uh drug addicts junkies around all the time we lived in a two family house with my um grandmother and uh my mother's Brother, who was a lifelong heroin addict, um, oh. active heroin user, just it was not. It wasn't even like, oh my god, someone's doing heroin. It was just like, oh, don't get down there, you know, Bondi's high. And I'm like, oh man. It, it, which I know now, saying that as an adult, just seems so crazy. But this is the life that I lived as a child. But you know, comes back to the question of nature versus nurture. Like, mm-hmm. what's innate in us and what's learned. And all I can tell you is. My brother became a heroin addict and a convict, and from my youngest memory, I was like, "I have to get out of here. I am not like these people," and I didn't have an example of who I was trying to be like. Mm. I was just trying to not be like them. Yeah. And um, you know, as soon as I graduated from college, I moved to New York and started working in finance. And yeah. that was a that's a whole other chapter.
1: <laughs> so you you head to New York City and you yeah. get a job. When it, was this like an entry level finance job? Like, what was the yeah. yeah, How did you start was
2: actually, out? It was actually a crazy, crazy whirlwind story. When I first moved to New York, I was working and I had a pharmaceutical sales job for about three months. I was making, I want to say like thirty-five dollars or $36,000 and living in a fifth, fifth floor walk-up apartment on the Upper East Side. By the time I got my take-home paycheck after taxes and everything, I was probably like $50 light per month of how I was going to pay the bills. But even then, I was like, I don't know why. I just had such blind faith in myself that (laughs) I was like, I'll figure this out. And I was using credit cards and just doing what I had to do. And it was, oh, my God, it was such a struggle. But I was playing in a men's pickup hockey league at Chelsea Piers. And I met a French-Canadian kid called Mike Pelletier and he was an interdealer broker of commodities so they were brokering trades between institutions so like banks and utilities mm-hmm. it's kind of like in terms of high finance and like real wall street work it's kind of like bottom of the barrel in terms of prestige on the on the totem pole but it was an incredible job i mean there were guys making several million dollars a year but i would always say this is a job this isn't a career cuz it's a lot of entertaining there were a little, there was a lot of drug use um amongst everyone it was it was literally like what you would imagine not not wolf of wall street stuff because we were never dealing with like retail customers it was all institutional Mm -hmm. but it was wolf of wall street in terms of like high life uh private jets football you know all the best events it was it was wild it didn't really suit me because you know i was good at pretending that that was the life i wanted but it was crazy and um yeah. I, I, um, I, so Mike Pelletier said, hey, we need an assistant. I took a job as an assistant on that trading desk. And um, it was like joining a college football team. They were at yeah, times just... hazing me, being nasty to me. Oh, no. And about, I want to say maybe two months into it, I was talking to, I had a few small customers at like Enron. We were doing trades that were irrelevant, inconsequential, but things that had to be done if you wanted to do business with their like senior traders later in the day. And uh, we were trading electricity. And um, like I said, the guys were hazing me, which was crazy. I was boxing for the New York athletic club. Like I was by no means a pushover, but they were just so arrogant and um, aggressive. And one day I just like slapped the guy in the face. So he just like pushed me too far. And I was like, yeah, dude, I've had it. My integrity is too important to me. And I cracked him and uh, they fired me. (laughs) But, so at the time I was, you know, making, let's say 40 grand. I, I'm just giving you the numbers for context yeah. to show you how crazy this life was. I called the guys at Enron, literally from a payphone. This is before I even had a cell phone, it was probably in like 96. <laughs> called the guys from a payphone, and I'm like, dude, I got fired. I, did, this, I didn't even know we had competitors. I didn't know there were other desks and shops doing what I was doing at this yeah. place. And wow. um, within 24 hours, I had a job at a competitor making $80,000. I was like, went from like tears to like tears of joy, and um, and very quickly from there things took off. A year or two later, I was hired by Cantor Fitzgerald to go to to go to London and run European and Asian commodity sales and trading. No management experience, no life experience. I started using drugs as a way to cope with um, this imposter syndrome or Mm -hmm. fraud complex I was suffering from. You know, it'd be like if you just got your PhD and like Stanford called and said they want you to run a lab, you'd be like, uh, I've never even, I've never even worked in a lab. You want me to run the lab? It was that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, great
1: analogy. Yeah.
2: So I, I went to London and it was just incredibly fast paced, but Oh my God, what an experience. I always tell my wife and my children, like, experiences are worth more than anything you could ever have materially no one can ever take them from me I went to the Monte Carlo Grand Prix twice uh Wimbledon you name it we did it and it was I had the best time skiing in Europe again for a poor kid I'm flying on the Concorde back and forth to New York from London it was just like you know fantasy stuff and um I I was irresponsible you know spending money like a drunken sailor just you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of the way I handled it, but I wouldn't take back the experiences, but it helped turn me into the person that I am now. Unfortunately, it took me, you know, 52 years to be recognized as an athlete and someone with a, um, a strong mindset. But, you know, I guess this should serve as an inspiration to others who might be struggling with something that it's never too late. Like today is either like one day or day one. And I choose to, to think about every day like that. I have a conscious thought every day of like, what's this the first day of? Is this the first day that my training gets really serious? As crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Or I get my diet yeah. dialed in today. And I, I tried to take that approach and I'm not always perfect, but yeah, those all those experiences helped forge me into the person I am. And you know, I'd say to anyone who's going through similar struggles or even in a dark place emotionally, and we can come back to like some of the trauma healing that I've done recently, I'd say, you know, tomorrow can be a brighter day, but it won't be a brighter day unless you make a conscious decision to fix things. And yeah. um, I, it's not always easy, but, you know, and it sounds cliche and I don't want to sound like a dope, but if you can just take the first step, that's every journey starts with one step. And again, I know yeah. it sounds like, I'm not trying to like make light of anything, but the truth is like, you have to take accountability. You have to take responsibility and take like extreme ownership of your current, your own situation. But if I can do this, I I promise you, anyone can do anything.
1: So at what point did you kind of go from recreational drug use to kind of full-blown addict who's actually functioning relatively well to kind of a, to a point where, what was the path to actually stopping and just being like, all right, I'm done with this?
2: Yeah, no good question. Um, I would say from when I was halfway through college, so maybe when I was around 20, I started to uh, do cocaine and and I I drank from, you know, 15 with my friends in Boston, we would just drink every weekend, you know, like normal, like uh, high school fraternity type kid stuff. And then in college started using cocaine. Used cocaine for several years till I realized what a losing proposition that was. And um, when I when I was living in New York, right before I moved to London, I was um, introduced to um, Percocet after um, surgery on my ankle. And um, once I tried those pills, like I said, I was had been suffering from like this. Always had suffered from a bit from anxiety and then the imposter syndrome, you know, fraud complex when I started working in finance and making like tremendous amount of money that I wasn't really prepared for it. I I was so ill prepared for like being an adult and um, it is what it is. I'm not making excuses. It is what it is. And um, I discovered opioids and when I felt the relief that they provided me from the anxiety and discomfort I was having with myself, I was like. I found, like I said, my my nirvana, I was like, holy cow, I didn't know you could be this happy. And um, unfortunately, it took, you know, a good 10 years to recognize that that was like a losing proposition. It's almost like when you're in a dark hole, those opioids let you like peek out of the hole. But when as soon as they wear off, you're deeper down in the Mm -hmm. hole and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper because those drugs aren't the kind of things that you can just say, you know what, tomorrow I'm not going to use drugs. Well, that's cool, but I hope you don't have anything to do for a week because you're going to be sick like words can't describe, like the most severe flu, sweating. You can't venture too far from the bathroom. You're just sick, sick. And um, so, yeah, my my um, late twenties is when, and by the way, when I got introduced to the to opioids from the first day, I was like, oh it's on. And it, initially it was like, just in the evenings after work, I'd always work out. So I'd come home work out and that I, I treated the opioids, like I wrote, like my reward system. Oh mm-hmm. great. I got a good workout. Now I can chill on the couch with opioids, Percocet, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever I was available. And, um, Yeah. It it, it very quickly turned from just an evening thing to like, Oh, I have, I, I feel terrible in the morning. Let me take one of these just to get through the day. And then, you know, within let's say two months, I'm taking them breakfast, lunch, dinner every single day. And then it would be one or two at a time, three or four at a time. And at the height was maybe like 50, 60 milligrams at a time, three times a day, which I can't believe in hindsight that I didn't I mean,
1: die. Like, the human how? body is just <laughs> just unbelievable.
2: When I hear people say like, "Oh, don't take more than two or three um, Tylenol," I'm like, two or three Tylenol? Do you I- know how much your Do you know how much your body can take? I was taking five or six Extra Strengths at a time, three times a day. I'm 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 completely ashamed of myself. But to your point, your body can take. A beating. Have you ever seen people like whacked out on heroin or crack cocaine and then you see them like a year later and they're sober when you see what they came from? You're like, how can a body take that much abuse and yeah. still keep functioning? It was a nightmare. And um, it, it, there were several fits and starts. So I, when I was living in London, I went through the uh, NA program, you know, like uh, Narcotics Anonymous. And, um, You know, the whole time I was in the addiction, I knew this is not, this is not good. So I'd get sober for a month or two, maybe a week or two at times, and then get right back on. It was just so incredibly, incredibly difficult from an emotional standpoint. And um, like I said, it took me about 10 years of being high around the clock, you know, 11 out of 12 months a year, let's say. And eventually when we started to, when I met my wife and then we started to plan to have a family and stuff, I was like, okay, I have to take responsibility. I had been a loser for so long that I just, at some point I was like, I cannot do this anymore to myself, to other people. It's just, I was so beaten down and you know, the expression, like I was just sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Yeah, And um, it, it just, you know, for the the, the sad part is, is the, the, the euphoria of the drugs wears off very quick, very early in your um, addiction cycle, meaning for the first, like if I hadn't used for months, then I got back on it, let's say for a week, then I'd get happy about taking them. And usually nothing was happier than the anticipation of taking the drugs. Right. And then the drugs would be like kind of a letdown. Yeah. But immediately after the first, let's say 30 minutes, it would be like just a complete downward spiral mm-hmm. until you could take some more and Oh, what a losing proposition! What a waste of time! I'm just so disappointed in myself, but i've tried to turn this into a positive by sharing the story, explaining to people how I was able to get off that merry go round mm-hmm. break the cycle and um you know i don't the 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 addiction had nothing to do with my success as a runner, but it is part of my journey, and I want people to know that you know you can- co- you, you can come back from anything. Yeah. People love a comeback story and, um, including, you know, us as individuals, like I think about it, I feel proud, you know, if it's, yeah. I did this, yeah. like not a lot of people can do what I did.
1: No, it's incredible. Would you say that, you know, there's obviously a, a really kind of profound neurochemical thing happening, <laughs> you know, in the, in the brain, when you, when you think about it from like a serotonin release endorphins, like, you know, obviously when you're taking drugs, you know, over time, you're going to need more and more to kind of get that same high. Other things, um, non-drug related are less pleasurable. I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if like a feature of of kind of seeking out a marathon and an Ironman, is that, do you think that there is something connected to the brain in terms of, you know, needing that kind of, I think, extreme kind of experience in order to kind of capture that same sort of high?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say this is like the training and the racing provides for me a distraction and a purpose.
0: Mm.
2: But I will say that the joy I get from winning a race does not outweigh the disappointment that I feel when I don't do well. (laughs) And if I do have a good race like my wife teases me because I I won the uh, Myrtle Beach Marathon two years ago and I won she didn't I I go to all these races by myself just because it's like it's business for me like I'm Mm -hmm. serious about it I take it serious I don't expect others to share my view but I view it I take it very seriously and so I called her I said yeah I won and she's like you don't sound that happy I was like I was like there wasn't anyone really good here I just kind of like I don't know I'm like the best weekend warrior. And she's like, if you didn't win, you'd be complaining that you should have won. Now you do win. And then the competition wasn't good enough. She goes, how much did you win by? I said, one minute. She's, <laughs> but that's just kind of an example of the mindset that I have when it comes to this. It's like not about what you come to realize when you do this kind of training is the Destination isn't winning a race. The destination is the actual journey. It's the suffering. It's like I just did a workout three by two miles at like a 530 pace. So, like just under marathon pace. And when you're doing that by yourself in Nashville in August, and it's like the kids just left for school. I got them off of school. No one's out. There's a few bus drivers drive by. The same people see me every day in my neighborhood. They think I'm crazy. I know that they yeah. beep and you know, wave and but and I always think about it when I'm doing the workout, I'm like, no one would do this. Like this yeah. is where races are won and lost. This yeah. is the victory being out here and putting in the work and suffering in mm-hmm. silence and, in and solitude, you know? And so it's the suffering and the, the journey that is, is what's fulfilling to me. And, um, I think it serves two purposes. Yes. It fulfills like, uh, serotonin or dopamine release Mm -hmm. that i get from the work even though the work is so grueling like when i'm sitting here thinking about going out and doing i'm like oh my god this is so insurmountable how am i going to get through this workout i'm dreading it and the race is almost like a secondary but but the other thing that that the workouts provide for me is a distraction for myself if i just sat here and instead of running for 90 minutes a day i thought about how i felt and just about my feelings. I would have no problem convincing myself that I deserve a couple hours of relief. Mm-hmm. I can get high one time. It'll just give me some peace. I can watch TV. I can do something. I have a hard time like just sitting and quietly and relaxing, Yeah. but that would allow me to do that. And I start to justify this in my head and it's yeah. like a, you know, like a cycle. So and if nothing else, the 90 minutes I'm out suffering on the road is 90 minutes. I'm not sitting by myself thinking about, how much better my life could be, or how much happier I could be if I would just get high.
1: Well, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. So I want to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about Gobi March. Why don't you kind mm. of tell our listeners like what what is that? And then yeah. um, you know we talk about kind of what the body can endure and how resilient it is, and everything that you put your body through. Frankly, <laughs> is just insane that your body can be in a position to kind of do what it does. I think should be to your point, like inspirational for folks, like it, to your point, it's like, you can do this. Like, what does that mean for the rest of us? You know, like our, like it, it's so um, yeah. So I think there's a, a really important kind of takeaway there, but tell us what that, what that is, what that race is. And, um, and then we can go through some of your data and we'd love to get your, your, uh, yeah. your feedback.
2: I will say this to start, like to your point, what could what else what what could you do if you just showed up and tried? Like, what, could I could I win some crazy race in Mongolia? If you had at, told me that before, part of my brain would have said, "Of course I can! I can win anything! I'm the best!" And there's another part that's like, "Are you crazy? You don't know what the hell you're doing." And I know from doing an Ironmans and my marathon journey, like those longer endurance events, take a lot of it. It takes a lot of experience and time to really optimize your performance and. Experience counts for so much, even in the marathon. It's like, okay, it's only two and a half, three hours if you're running fast, but you learn a lot over those two or three hours. Um, so the Gobi Desert, the Gobi March race was across the Gobi Desert in, in Central Mongolia. And basically, it's a six day stage race predetermined distances every day of like 25 to 50 miles a day, self-supported, meaning you are carrying your own food. They provide water and a a tent at night. So every day, like a, like the Tour de France you'd raise stage one would be 21 miles stage two, 28 miles. And they'd be predetermined campsites where they, you just have some tents you'd have assigned tents to sleep with, you know, three or four people, four or five people in each tent. And they provide, not cold water, room temperature water, and and this water is out in the desert all day. You can imagine how pleasurable this was. It was like I didn't have ice for a week, (laughs) anything cold for a week, and they provided hot water to um, mix up your, um, you know, meals ready to eat, like military-style MREs that you just pour water into, like, rice and chicken, whatever it was. Hmm. So you had to carry six days of food, a few uh, mandatory uh, safety Equipment like a flashlight, headlamp, a mirror, you know, like a whistle, just in case you get lost out there. The course is marked with little pink flags, but it's not on roads or trails. It's like across open desert pastures, mountains. It was in hindsight, it was crazy. And, you know, for context, I had never run with a backpack. I had never been camping in my life. I grew up in the inner city. As I described, my family wasn't going to like, you know, campgrounds. Um, I don't know how to fish or hunt. I'm like, I have no man skills. I'm like (laughs) a city guy through and through. You know, if we have to like fight for survival, I like my chances. But if we have to like go on this TV show alone, I'll be dead in a week. (laughs) Which is funny because my friend uh, Brent Montgomery actually produces that show alone. He's like, dude, you'd be perfect for alone. I'm like, dude. We're friends. Why would you ever do that to me? I'd make a fool of myself. Um, so about four weeks before my friend, Scott Daru, who's the president of Equinox, he said, hey, I'm doing this race. And I don't know why, how or what happened, but I just looked at it. I go, dude, I bet I can win that race. And he's like, what? This guy's climb climbed Mount Everest. He's like he's an outdoorsman. And he's like, go for it. I sent a letter, to, you know, it was sold out obviously four weeks before it was like, you know, I had to, the, the amount of crap I had to go through uh, doctor's notes, medical reports. Like it was, you, you don't just sign up and show up and, um, they, long story short, they were like, yeah, you're good. And you can, you can come if you want. We'd love to have you. And, uh, so I did had to like immediately order all the equipment I needed. It was a lot of stuff. Backpack, safety mm. equipment. What shoes am I gonna wear? Because now I'm wearing you you absolutely needed trail shoes. There was when we weren't on a road or a or a fire road for the whole time. And um yeah I just signed up, showed up checked in I mean I was getting on the plane I was telling my wife I was getting on the plane it was like I was going to the electric chair I was like I can't believe I'm doing this what the F am I doing here like I'm an idiot I told everyone I'm doing this I look like a clown but I tell this story and I told uh, my friend Rich Roll this when I did his podcast for a second time recently I sent him a text because he's he knows the ultra world pretty well and I said hey uh March what do you know He's like, "Oh, dude, be careful. Let's claimed many an ultra rate rate runner. Uh, so I think someone died there in 2010." I told him in my mind, all I heard was, "Can be careful. You can't do that. That's too much for you." Mm. I was like, "Ha!" Huh? And I told Rich this in jest. I know he didn't mean it like that, but I just took it as, "Yeah, it's too much for you." And I was like, "Oh, really? I'm winning this race." <laughs> and I told another friend called James Davies, who runs um, investment banking at Deutsche, I said. At Deutsche Bank, I said, yo, do you know this? His, I think he had done maybe Marathon Desab or one of those big ones. And he said, wow, man, if you could get top 10, even top five, that would be so impressive. And I just, I remember saying to him, like, top five. I said, dude, I'm going to win this race. And he's <laughs> like, oh, he's British. He's like, mate, come on, man, have realistic. There's a lot to know. And, and there was a 51% of my brain was like, I'm winning. And the other 49 was like, what the hell are you doing? But that 1% was overpowering. And um, next thing I know, I'm on a plane to Mongolia and um, sleeping in a tent on a Saturday night. It is, when I say it's raining, like I thought the tent was going to blow away. It was the most violent thunderstorm I'd ever been in. And we are in the middle of like the Mongolian steppe. It was crazy. I was in a tent with three women, uh, one from Hong Kong, one from Singapore, and, uh, and an Irish woman and i i i can't tell you how uncomfortable i was just i i'm a big baby like if i when i go to run a marathon i have to stay at the ritz carlton or the four seasons again having grown up the way i grew up i'm like i've earned the right to be able to sleep comfortably the day before the race i've got too much time and money invested in my training i'm yeah. going to be comfortable so as i'm sleeping on an air like a little pad thing with a sleeping bag. <laughs> Keep in mind, I've not used any of my equipment. I set it up the night before, at the and, day before I left. And, my and I can just
1: confirm like... that your sleep sucked. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: two nights in a row, I slept like less than two hours. One night I did sleep well. So I, I got up the first day throughout all this time, every time I'm thinking, Oh my God, what am I doing here? There was, like I said, there was like 51% of my brain is like, let's go. We're doing this. We're going to F we're going to kill these guys. Like it, it was, I was in super like fight mode and the flight was just a little bit too small to get me out of there. And, um, yeah, first day I got blown out. I finished fourth, but I was like, I, I, they just ran away from me with a few miles Mm. to go in a way that usually doesn't happen to me. And I was like, wow, I am screwed. Like, I can't believe how like that I got dropped. Yeah. And then the next day I came back, I slept okay that second night. And um, second day was 28 miles longest I've ever run. And Mm -hmm. I destroyed everyone. I won by like 10 minutes. But wow. in, in the course of doing so, I my, my backpack ripped. I fell down, busted my elbow open. I was covered in blood. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I crossed the finish. line. Like, like, oh, my God, what's wrong? I have blood everywhere. I must have been touching the blood, touching oh my, my face. And I was like, I'm not bleeding. And they're like, you're covered in blood. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm not bleeding. And then I was like, oh, my God, my arm is bleeding. But, uh, yeah, and then it just, I mean – we could do a whole two hour episode on just a day to day uh, ongoings of running through sand dunes, oh. you know, climbing up, scaling up a mountain of sand. What was the heat? Like, what was the temperature? It would get probably into the mid nineties. Um, keep in mind, I only had one set of one, like race clothes. So I'd, I'd rinse them out at the end of the night, which they you weren't technically supposed to You waste water for anything but drinking. Wow. But I'm like, if I don't <laughs> wash these clothes, like, Oof. it's on it's I, I wouldn't be able to do it yeah. and so you know you got sunblock on you just you're just dirty sunburnt, Ugh. sticky sand um, oh in my
1: every crevice god. Of- oh
2: my. just trying to sleep one night I was trying to sleep I went to take a sip of my water bottle and it uh I accidentally poured water on into my sleep bag like enough that I was like oh my god my sleeping bag is soaked It's got to be packed up and you got to carry it. you got to carry it with you. So when I got to the next spot, I laid it out in the sun and it dried. But That's the kind of thing, like just so many crazy things would happen. But I was taking good care of myself. Like because I had trained so much, like I didn't really get blisters. And every day we crossed like four or five rivers waist deep. So every day your shoes and socks were soaked from the jump but people at the medical tent every day, it was like their feet, like they walked on hot coals to the point where I walked over there one day, I'm like, "Like, no offense guys, but have you run? Have you ever trained? How can your feet be that torn up? Like you haven't done 25 mile runs to prepare for this? Like this is unacceptable.
1: Like how can you possibly be that torn up?
2: It was literally like they didn't train.
1: Wow. That's so interesting. So, I mean, a lot of the success in races like this clearly are building a level of resilience kind of going in. And that's why I think the beauty of WHOOP is that, you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're minding your sleep, if you're thinking about your sleep consistency, if you're managing your capacity with recovery and, you know, kind of doing the modalities and getting your nutrition right, you know, hydrating appropriately, you kind of go into those races with like quite a buffer, you know, in terms of like being able to sustain that level of, you know, mental, physical, emotional, just complexity and, and harshness. Um, so I guess I want to know like leading into the event, you know, what would you kind of say are like the core behaviors that you can maybe attribute to the level of resilience that you had over the course of that six-day race?
2: Consistency is the key to everything I've done
1: mm-hmm.
2: because I have literally runs an average of 10 miles a day, let's say for like four or five years. I knew coming in, when I say every day, I mean, every day I've run with tornado sirens going off.
1: And let me just say one thing. You, you say this a ton showing up, <laughs> you know, availability to train, you know, for me, like, you know, I was a coach for 17 years and I was a double sport athlete in college, same played for the U S team for many, many years. And I think I always pride myself on like, all right, I'm not gonna get injured. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of my body and I'm going to make sure that I can show up and train every single day. And I, and I definitely see that, you know, on the Woot platform, you know, at population levels. I mean, the people that can show up every day who are kind of managing, I suppose, like a non-negotiable set of behaviors are the ones who really achieve in in their sport. And um, so, yeah, so just kind of unpack that a little bit. I I know you're kind of, you're getting going, but just to kind of, Put the plug for just showing up and what that actually means in terms of, cause people are like, Oh, I'm just going to show up and train. Well, you know what? No, there's actually like a lot of behaviors that precede that that determine whether or not you can mentally, physically, emotionally show up in a way that you're proud of.
2: Yeah. The, that's a good point. Like I, I, the first thing I would say is I treat my training and um, my, my, you know, running deadly seriously. Like it's Mm. incredibly important to me. Like it's given me the greatest gifts in my life from a professional standpoint. It's helped me like stand out from a crowd. And it's literally something that I was just doing as a therapeutic outlet for myself. Mm. But I would say to your point, I, I mean, showing up is 80% of the battle, like the Gobi desert. Like I I said to Rich Roll on his podcast, like Rich, I'm not trying to be funny. What else can I do? Could I win Leadville? Could I win Badwater? I, I mean, the first step that I have to do to see if I could is get on the start line. And that goes for everyone and relates to everything. Mm. Well, could you be a piano virtuoso? You won't know if you don't sit down and stop playing and take a couple lessons. Um, but to your point, I have had, you know, probably every injury under the sun, but I have actively addressed those injuries as soon as something starts to happen. Now. I mean, I've got so much experience. If I, Notice there's a tweak in my Achilles or my calf. I immediately start doing some negative calf drops
1: mm. where I
2: raise up on, on my toes on a step, mm-hmm. on one leg, and lower on a 12. Sounds crazy. Three or four reps, no problem. By the fifth or sixth rep, it feels like your calf's going to explode. It's just so like swollen with blood, like it's pumped. And I do those three or four times a day for several weeks. And I promise you for four or five years, it's alleviated every single lower leg ailment that I've had. I had plantar fasciitis so bad at one point that I couldn't walk. I mean, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, like when I'd start running the plantar fasciitis, the tendon that goes across the bottom of your foot and on the arch of your foot would loosen up. So the first mile or two would be like running on broken glass and then it would be completely gone by the end of the run. I'd go back, I'd go home, eat. Go to like uh, when I had this, I was living in Philadelphia. My partner Teddy Atlas and I we trained a kid called Alex Vosdick, who was the WBC light heavyweight champion of the world, and we had a fight against Otter Bedaib, who had the IBF title. Uh, big fight, ESPN pay per view. We lived in Philly for eight weeks, so I'd do my run in the morning, then we'd go to the gym to train Alex at like eleven a.m. And I'm telling you, I would stand on the side of the ring and do these calf drops, but my feet or the pain was honestly, it was a 10. So when people tell me, oh, my foot is killing me. I'm like, yeah, you don't have to tell me, I know. And I'm telling you, I trained right through it, but I did, I took all these measures to your point. I stayed proactively working this. I rolled my foot on a golf ball. I did all the painful things that they tell you to do, but I followed them because they tell you to do these things because they work. Nice. so i would do that I, if i had um, a glute issue i'd do hamstring exercises anything you can think of i had it i'd use every device Normatex, power dot i'd use all these therapeutic devices which unfortunately i only use if i feel like i have an injury Oof. i'm not very good at staying uh proactive ahead of yeah. uh you know prehabbing but yeah the training is a small part but that's the first part you know you just got to show up and do the work and then the second part is if it's important to you you'll figure out a way to keep doing it but i haven't been sidelined by an injury that didn't require surgery like i had shoulder surgery i took Mm -hmm. four days off Um, i mean i had a massive shoulder surgery the guy told me four weeks do not take your arm out of this sling by the fourth day i was like dude i can't do it i'd rather get the surgery again i just put a belt around my neck held the thing and just held my shoulder tight and started running and, wow. uh, yeah, the guy, I, 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 the guy who I bought my house from and naturally played for the Titans, he was an offensive lineman, Chris Spencer, a great dude. He had the same exact surgery from the same guy. And he had said to me like, Oh no, no, you're not going to be able to run for four weeks. He goes, I couldn't even sleep in my bed for four weeks. I slept on a recliner and, uh, <laughs> I saw him, I was outside running. He drilled by me and he was like, dude, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, no, man, this feels good. I'm like, not really moving. And I'm just, and he was like, you know, incredulous, but that's. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest other people do that, but I'm just trying to give you a glimpse into like how Mm -hmm. I approach this in terms Mm -hmm. of showing up. Because again, it was as much about my mental health as it was about Mm -hmm. my physical well-being.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are totally interrelated from like just a diet and, and kind of hydration perspective. What, what are just some principles that you abide by just to, cause your strain is, I mean, you average like a 20 strain, which is, it's got to be. I think be. I was
2: 20.2 for it, last year for the whole year.
1: Yeah, 20.4 well, <laughs> four, actually, <laughs> oh which God. is just insanity, right? Like, there's just like, uh, there can't be anyone on our platform who is exceeding that. So, it's I was going to ask you that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think from the standpoint of just like being able to kind of maintain that uh, strain level and mm. have the requisite capacity to kind of continuously do that is just, it's honestly mind blowing, right? So, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think a lot of it, to your point, like comes from the, just the, the psychology and the mindset and just your will and drive is just otherworldly. So there's that, mm. but then you combine it with, you know, this just, you've got obviously like a physical acumen that is, you know, in the, the, the top in the world. Right. So you've kind of got this incredible combination. I think that allows you to work through pain in ways that are incredible. But I think what's very interesting is that this doesn't show up negatively in your recovery. That's what is just mind blowing to me, right? If we had someone like when we see someone who has a couple days with strain with a, with a high strain in the way that you have, they'll be red for four or five days trying to recover, Mm. right? Mm. So, and you can repeat that like day after day after day. And, you know, you live a lot in the yellow, but you have plenty of green days. You know, like it's just, it Mm. is amazing to me how your body is able to regenerate and you can repeat consistently this level of output.
2: Yeah. I, I, I treat all of those things deadly serious. I take a ton of supplements. Mm-hmm. As soon as I finish a workout, I take every single workout. I take, um, recovery drink from uh, Momentus. momentous. I'll mm-hmm. take athletic greens, um, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, uh, a ton of fish oil. I hydrate every day. I have a, a bottle of, um, element. Uh, first thing in the morning, as soon as I get out of bed, I have one or two cups of coffee. I have the uh, you know twelve ounces of element, mm-hmm. twelve ounces of water. Mm-hmm. Um, I hydrate incessantly throughout the day. But I will say when I'm doing my training, I could. I try to bring, if I'm going to do more than 15 miles, I'll bring a gel and I'll plan mm-hmm. to run past some water bubblers in the uh, park. One nice thing about the national parks is there's actually like publicly available things like bubblers yeah. where well, people Well, it's don't humid like as it. shit, right? So, like, yeah. I mean, it's. Oh, it's, it's, it's humid on another level. I mean, <laughs> it's just it,
1: this Tennessee hit, heat hits different. Like, there's no question having done plenty of track workouts down there at this point. Yeah. The- it's crazy.
2: I think that that heat and humidity though is like a superpower because if you can sustain doing the training and those, and the difference in time per, on the splits is astronomical. Like you feel like you're working at like a five minute flat pace and you look down, I'm like, Oh my God, 540 for that yeah. mile. That's crazy. Yeah. I feel like just I'm just reduces capacity. Yeah.
1: I have to ask about your marathons. So for the over 50 category or division, so three of the six major marathons, New York, Boston, and Tokyo you have second place finishes and th- three others: London, York, Chicago, Boston. Berlin.
2: I got second in London, Berlin, and Chicago, and I okay. got first in first. New York, Boston, and Tokyo.
1: Okay, so Boston, yes. holy shit! Yeah, that yeah. was amazing. <laughs> okay, yeah. so obviously, I live in Hopkinton.
2: Oh man, I wish I knew it would have come so, and hung out at your house.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, if you run it again, you have a place to stay. One um, of these days. Yeah. But, um, but talk a, a little bit about what, what was it like to win in kind of your hometown. Um, that must've been kind of a full circle moment.
2: Again, like it, it, it's like a dream come true. But of course, when I win, I win the 50 and over category. I'm like, I should have won the 40 and over category. That's like a, that's like <laughs> something notable, right? Who won the master's division is considered 40 and over in, in New York. I did. I think I was the first person over 50 to ever win it. And the crazy thing is I was coming in the finish and the time wasn't great, but the course is so hard in in New York. I ran 233 and I'm coming in the finish and here comes Shalane Flanagan behind me. And she was like, I think she was running all the majors in one year. I did it in 17 months, but so, so she had miles in her legs and she's coming closer on me fast and the crowd's going crazy. And I'm like, I know they're not cheering (laughs) for me. So I'm looking around and I see her and I was like, um, I'm such like a, an insecure guy. I was like, oh, hell no. And I start sprinting and I beat her by one second. Oh my and God. funny enough, she was on the flight on the way. I, I had to fly to Seattle from New York for work and I get on the plane and she's sitting right behind me for first class. And I was like, hey, thanks for the push at the end. So we were like laughing about that. But um Because of that sprint, I end up winning the 40 and over division by three seconds. And, you know, people are staggered, started, they crossed. So so it's not like the guy who was in second was right next to me, you know? So, but to me that, I mean, I won like $4,000 or something to that effect. It was like, I mean, the previous winners were like two of my friends, Meb Kofleski and Abdi Abdi Rockman, who was, Abdi was a five-time UX, I mean, five-time U.S. Olympic runner. Imagine going to five Olympics and Meb... (laughs) And Meb Kowleski won it a couple of years before I won it. And he won, you know, he's won Boston. He's won New York. He's second at the Olympics. I mean, he's a freaking superhero. And it's funny, it's a- after that race, Abdi sent me a text like, hey, welcome to the Masters Club. And then I saw a uh, Meb uh, the next, that was in November. And in April, I saw him at Boston. I was like, hey, Meb, let's get a picture of two, mas- two bo- former uh, ma- Masters champions. That was like probably the highlight of all my marathoning. But Boston was incredible because uh, my friend Des Linden won it in 2018. And when you win, um, you know, you get the like VIP treatment. So she always has a plus one to the start line in the pro bus. And then you get to hang out in the uh, Korean church at the start line out of the elements lay down there's like mats in there you can relax because you're not out there like three or four hours in the elements before the race like everyone else so it, that that part of it is just magical right so you walk i walk out with the pros the men go and start and i just step into the front of the rest of the pack of the age groupers so it's funny this year they were running ads for the new york for the boston marathon in boston and at one point there were some fighter jets flying overhead and the photographers standing at the start line and I'm standing on the start line with the rest of the people and everyone's looking at the fighter jets. And I just remember like, I don't care if they're dropping bombs, I'm ready to go. I'm not paying attention to them. And the camera looked at me and I was like, have my hands up, like I was ready to fight and everyone else is looking back like this. And I remember putting a caption on Instagram, like, while everyone else is distracted, I'm ready to go. And uh, That's awesome. yeah, it was, it was, it was a great day. The only slight disappointment as I ran two, two thirty 30 and 20 seconds. And I was just like, you know, from like four miles out, I'm like, Oh, this is going to be close. <laughs> and I, and, 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 you know, friends were like, why didn't you just sprint the last mile? I'm like sprint. I sprint the last 26 miles. What are you talking about? I was running as fast as I could.
1: <laughs> okay. Ken, we have questions that we ask, you know, all of our guests, what are you obsessing over right now?
2: I'm obsessing over honestly, being a better dad. I'm obsessing over my children. I'm obsessing over not getting wrapped up in their performance. Although I will tell you, I preach to my children, you do not have to be good to live here. You don't have to be good. You do have to try the best though. You mm-hmm. cannot live here and not give your best effort. We'll, yeah. It's unacceptable.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, then my children are 13, 12, 10 and 8. And my Dang. youngest, like, as you can imagine, is like developing much quicker than the older ones in terms yeah. of like athlete. He's a jujitsu wizard. Wow. He's, he boxes with Teddy Alice. He does wow. jujitsu. He does wrestling. He's going to judo next week. He's wow. Some kids just like crave just, that contact. And it's yeah. like, I wasn't one of them. I wanted to play quarterback because I didn't want to get tackled. <laughs> this little guy is like, give him, give me all the heat, dad. I love it.
1: Let's wow. go. Wow. It is amazing when you can kind of see your kids like develop passions. And yeah, I mean, and I think like, you know, one of the things that I always was really mindful of, you know, just being a coach for so many years and seeing, you know, the athletes that um, are really uh, intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically motivated and just the difference in just their levels of joy and how that really does start. Parents have a huge influence over that. Right. And I, you know, one of the things where I knew like I'm like succeeding as a parent is when my, you know, my kids literally don't even know if I'm at their game. They don't even care. Yeah. Like they, they just literally—they're never looking up in the stands. Like they're yeah, never, yeah, yeah. you know. Like it's really you're just winning. So, I, yeah, you're you know, winning. Like, Honestly,
2: you're winning. I, I, when I see parents, and I—I I don't mean to be cynical, but when I see parents that they clearly care too much, and I'm like, man, you need an outlet, dude. You cannot live vicariously through these kids. It's—it's it's not healthy for you or for them.
1: I know. And, I, I, and listen, I'm guilty
2: of it. Sometimes I want them so bad to do well because I want them to be happy. And I have to remind myself of like, a lot of times, like you said, I'll stand as far away as possible because I don't mm-hmm. want to be tempted to be like, go over there, get over there, telling them where to go, you know? And it's I know. like, I sound and like it an And it has idiot.
1: to be about them, you know? And, and I yes. think that's what I always tell my kids. I was like, listen, like, you know, you don't need to watch warm up. In fact, mm-hmm. don't watch warm-up <laughs> As I tell yeah. you, you know, like it, it's not, doesn't mean you're not, you know, I think a good parent. It means that the, you know, the kid starts to learn that this is really, this is about them. And it's yeah. it's not about the the parent. And I think the sooner the the kids can really embrace that and parents can embrace that, I think the healthier that kind of youth sport experience is going to be. Well, Ken, you have uh, evolved into just an exceptional uh, man and just inspiring and an athlete. Um, so I'm just really grateful for the conversation today. And I know our listeners are going to love it.
2: thank you you. Um, like I said I'm super honored and um, humbled to be a guest on the podcast and have a conversation with someone so well respected so thank you for having me thank you to your listeners I hope they enjoy it I do my best to try to not sound narcissistic and just the facts and hopefully someone can get something from my experiences and recognize that if that dope can win I can win too
1: love that thank you
0: thank you Thank you to Ken Rideout for joining us today on the Whoop Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. Check us out on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered, email us, podcast at Whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. If you want to join Whoop, try it for 30 days for free. That's right. Go to Whoop.com and you can literally get everything about the Whoop membership for free for 30 days. And that's all we got. Okay, thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Woo Podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.